Welcome to Chalk and Talk, a podcast about education and math. I'm Anna Stocky, a math professor and your host. You are listening to episode 22 of Chalk and Talk. My guest in this episode is Dr. Carl Hendrick. He is a professor and an author of several books on teaching and education. I've followed and admired his work for many years. He's extremely knowledgeable about various education topics that I'm really interested in. So I was delighted when he agreed to come on my podcast. Carl has written about growth mindset, so I asked him to talk about what the research says about that. We talked about whether motivation is a precursor to academic success or if, in fact, success is more likely to lead to motivation. We talked about whether engagement is a valid measure of learning and whether it's possible to teach generic skills like critical thinking. I asked Carl how we might define the science of learning and to discuss teaching methods that are in line with the science of learning. We ended the conversation with a discussion on the impact of mobile phones on learning and Carl gives some useful advice for new teachers. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Carl, and I hope you do too. Now, without further ado, let's get started. I am very pleased to introduce Dr. Carl Hendrick today, and he is joining me from London, England. He has a PhD in education from King's College, London. He is a professor of education at Academica University of Applied Sciences, Prior to that, he was an English teacher and head of learning and research at Wellington College for 11 years, and he taught in several other schools in the UK prior to that. He is the author of several books on learning and education, including How Learning Happens with Paul Kirshner and How Teaching Happens, and What Does This Look Like in the Classroom, Bridging the Gap Between Research and Practice. He blogs at carlhendrick.com. He's very active on X, formerly known as Twitter. He often tweets about research studies, and he's a frequent invited speaker. Welcome, Carl. It's so nice to meet you. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm really honored. So before we get into it, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about your background. What subjects and what grades did you teach? I started life. I, I didn't do very well in school. I left school. I was a musician for a few years. I kind of moved out of where I was living and and lived in the city centre of Dublin for a couple of years. Then I moved to London. And then I had this really misguided idea that I was going to be a novelist. So I thought, well, I should really kind of read as much as I can. So I did a degree in English literature, English and American literature. And I really loved that. And I thought, how can I keep the good times rolling? So I speculatively applied for a PGCE, so a teacher training degree at King's College, which is a very you know prestigious place and just totally not thinking that I would get anywhere near the place. And I managed to pull the wool over their eyes and I got in there. Part of that was a teacher placement. So I was put into an inner city London state school and I just really loved it. Then after that, I did a master's degree in uh, literature, modern contemporary literature. And then I went back to King's College to do a PhD. It was sort of a period of long-term self-indulgence, you know, academic decadence. I was just kind of reading stuff that I was interested in. And and then um, I encountered 
some cognitive psychology. So stuff that was probably like halfway through that process, or maybe three or four years into my PhD, I had encountered stuff that I had never encountered before. And that was stuff about the limitations of working memory. I remember looking at the work of Engelman or, or wanting to find out about education research and really coming from a constructivist background. And constructivism was the kind of the kind of sine qua non, like the non-negotiable, this is how learning happens. You know, kids learn in groups, they learn through talk, they construct their own knowledge and stuff like that. So then I kind of read some cognitive psychology and just felt, wow, this is like, why have I not heard about this? You know, this is extraordinary that I had no knowledge of this. I remember reading about project follow through and thinking, wow, well, that's a big study. That's a long study and not quite understanding it. And then reading why minimally guided instruction doesn't work, which was, I think, published in about 2006. And I just never heard any of these arguments before. You know, I, I, I just, I'd not heard them phrased like that. Then I'd heard Dan Willingham talk. As you know, he's masterful at kind of rendering these concepts and making them come alive. Then that got me to a place of really thinking hard about, well, what do teachers need to know? Like, what are the things that they can use in a classroom? And that was, that led me then to write a book called What Does This Look Like in the Classroom, where really I had gotten disillusioned with the language of academia, particularly in education departments, this very obscure, kind of undemocratic language. I, I, I kind of saw a lot of academics writing for other academics and not really writing for teachers. So I was interested in the question of what do you wish you knew in your first few years of teaching and what would help you in that situation. So then was introduced to some amazing people. And then I wrote a book with Paul, and then another book with Paul, and, and here I am. You're a musician? Yeah, I, I was in a band and we had a record deal. This is sort of pre-internet. So this is around 1999. We had a record deal, yeah. We made an album with a guy called Michael Beinhorn, who was a very well-known producer. He produced like bands like Soundgarden. And I think he did an Ozzy Osbourne record. I think he did a Red Hot Chili Peppers album as well. We were just not really good enough, <laughs> but we had gotten our foot in the door and we toured a lot and we played with some big bands and, and, and then we got dropped quite rightly by the record label. And then, and then that's when I moved to London. So are you a singer or what instrument do you play? So, yeah, guitar player, singer, but there's nothing now, there's nothing online. Any stuff that was there was kind of gone, but I do have a video of the band at a festival. Yeah, that's going to stay in the vault. You encountered cognitive psychology in your PhD, as I understand it. So you didn't encounter it as a teacher. So you hadn't heard of it when you were you're teaching or throughout your education degree is what we call it here. Is that right? That's exactly right. For my PGC, I had this really great tutor, King's College, and then she was my PhD supervisor as well. And She's just a wonderful, brilliant person. And we, I used to, at all the meetings that we would just come and talk about books or music or stuff like that. And she's just a wonderful, wonderful person. But we kind of had, as time went on, I think I would, I would say we had different views about learning. The stuff that I remember was, was obviously Vygotsky was pretty constructivist in nature. And it was kind of politically inflected as well, I think which I wasn't really that interested in. I was just interested in, you know, how kids learn, how do people learn things? And what are the, 
conditions under which you could create that, the best conditions for that to happen and flourish. You know, I, we, I was working in a, you know, an inner city state school. Behavior was, was challenging. And I was sort of realizing that a lot of the things in the air were not really effective. There were things that were effective that were probably, they weren't encouraged. So lesson observations were usually, you know, if you had inspectors in or whatever, you'd kind of pull this secret lesson out of the drawer, this kind of Cirque du Soleil, you know, all singing, all dancing, kids running across the room to kind of pinning stuff on the walls and all that kind of stuff. And then you'd, your day-to-day, you know, to get the kids through the exam or get them to know stuff, you'd use explicit instruction and you'd test them a lot and you'd, you know, get them to think about stuff. So all of those came into sharp focus. And then I think in the last couple of years, what I'm really interested in is just, you know, you have this incredible tradition of research from laboratory conditions about cognitive architecture and we're really kind of, in, in many ways, we're at the kind of at the frontier of getting that to work in a classroom, because as as you know, Tom Perry's review from two years ago showed, when you really get down to like how does this stuff work, like what are the most evidence things we have? They're probably the testing effect, retrieval practice, stuff like that. The, the studies that are in you know ecologically valid conditions in real classrooms, there's not that much of it, so that's the kind of the focus that I'm that I'm interested in, and that's I think a, a challenge worth working towards. You mentioned project follow through, and it, I mean I was amazed when I heard about project follow through as well. It's something I haven't talked on the podcast yet, and I probably could have a whole episode on it. But I'm wondering if if you mind just sort of telling us a little bit about project follow through. We don't have to get into all the details, but just sort of the gist of it so that the listeners know what we're talking about. So it's a study that was done in the 60s where there was a series of different pedagogical approaches tested. And one of them was Engelman's direct instruction. So direct instruction, as you know, there's a kind of the capital DI and and the lower DI, the kind of Rosenshine variety. And the thing that's interesting about this study is that it has a you know a massive sample size and it's over a long period of time. So it was quite a longitudinal study. They measured a whole range of things. So what was what was really, I think, kind of significant about this study was that the students did best in terms of academic attainment through direct explicit instruction. And you know, you'd probably ex- expect that. But they also scored higher on things like affect, well-being, self-efficacy, you know, stuff like that, which is really kind of interesting because one of the one of the criticisms of say what we might call more traditional approaches is that it's just focused on passing an exam. So that study, I mean, there there has been criticisms of it in terms of its methodology, but it remains to this day the biggest study we have on teaching. And it kind of stands in contrast with a lot of studies that are you know very kind of short term and yeah it's it's a it's an interesting one and again you know something you don't hear a lot about no you don't hear a lot about it and i mean it it's surprising because as you say i think it was the largest educational study ever done my guess is the reason we don't hear a lot about it is because some people don't like the results that in fact direct instruction came out ahead of other methods. Like there was something like inquiry-based instruction and there was something like, yeah. you know, a, a feel-good curriculum. It's, it sort of goes to this idea that 
there's broadly kind of two visions of of how learning happens. And the first one is that, and this is what Rich Meyer calls the dominant view of learning, which is that kids learn through discovering things for themselves. And then the corollary of that is that if you accept that first premise, then it follows on that the teacher should facilitate that process. And the way to do that is through minimally guided instruction. As Piaget said, every time a teacher teaches a student something, they deprive them of learning that thing for themselves, which sounds you know, really nice, but it's, it, it's, it's a ridiculous assertion. And we're, we're probably maybe taking that out of context, but for whatever reason, particularly in, in Western education, this idea that to tell or explain things to students is a bad idea. It's just a belief that is so pervasive, even to the point where it was taken as read when I started teaching 15 years ago that the less the teacher was talking in the classroom, the better. And this was seen as a sign of good practice to not explain things, to let you know them discover them for themselves. And even like in the general public, you'll find these kind of misconceptions. You would you would never apply that to other areas of learning, such as learning to drive. You know, you can't imagine stepping into a car and the, the instructor saying, "Okay, I'm not going to tell you. You know, you're just going to figure this out for yourself." My theory on this is that the kind of TED Talk culture in the last 15, 20 years has really sent that into orbit. But it comes from the basic truth that learning, at its heart, it's fairly boring. We're talking about uh, the limitations of working memory, how information is processed and stored and accessed. So you have that kind of truth about things. And then you have this other, you know, this kind of sexy view of learning that's like, th that you see obviously on TED Talks and, and, and other fields. And that just travels a lot better. That is just much more appealing to the general public. And it's this sort of, this idea that there's one causal vector for learning. And it's growth mindset, it's grit, it's this, that, or the other. And the dullness, the kind of, the banality of learning, the actual basics rudimentary of cognitive architecture, it doesn't travel as well. You mentioned growth mindset, and that's something I haven't talked about yet. And it's something I hear a lot about. And you actually have written about this. So you wrote an article called the growth mindset problem. The subtitle is, a generation of school children is being exhorted to believe in their brain's elasticity. Does it really help them learn? So I'd like to talk about this. So first, can you just tell us what is growth mindset and how is it usually implemented in schools? It emerges really in the, in the 1980s with Carl Dweck and essentially it's about one's belief about intelligence. The original idea was that there was an, there's kind of two beliefs. One is an entity theorist and one is an incremental theorist. In other words, a fixed and a growth mindset. And if you have a fixed mindset, you believe that intelligence is fixed and that you're either smart or you're not smart and there's not much you can do about it. And if that's the case, then why should you kind of, you know, make any efforts? An incremental theorist or someone with a growth mindset believes that effort and failure are necessary steps along the way to success. And really intelligence is something that you can acquire, something that you can achieve. Now, 
I would say, I've been reading about this for a long time and I was lucky enough to meet Carol Dweck and to spend some time with her. And I think she's to be admired. I think she's a serious kind of scientist. When she published her work, there was some initial really interesting findings and she was criticized for it heavily and she answered those critics in a fairly um, comprehensive way. So I, I think, you know, th th to, to simply say, oh, this is a myth or this, that and the other, I think is is not really fair. However, my view on it is that it's it's not so much an intervention as a philosophy. And the idea that you can change your intelligence through effort is a laudable idea. And it's one that kind of, I think all educators should have. Otherwise, why would we do what we do? You know, if you, if you thought that you couldn't affect intelligence, I think where the problem arises is that it's not a pedagogy. It's not a thing. You're trying to motivate people or change their beliefs. There have been some studies like this. There's a short intervention. One of the more promising ones was, I think it's a 25 minute online intervention. And you see small effects with that. But in general, to kind of summarize the literature, it's quite mixed. And you you often see varying results. There's been a number of quite large studies, one here in the UK about five or six years ago. You see null effect a lot and no statistical significance. So I think it's a kind of a, a nice philosophy to have. The question really is one of time. If we have time with students, what should we be using that time to do? Like if a student is not good at maths, then they need probably more instruction on maths. They need more practice. They don't really need to be in a room talking about the plasticity of the brain or as a general rule, I think if you ever see the phrase rewiring your brain in terms of education, we should be suspicious of that. You know, everything sort of rewires your brain. So it's kind of true, but in a in, in a kind of superficial sense. It's an important addition to the broader literature on motivation. But again, I think the jury is very much out on a growth mindset. But again, it's work that should be taken seriously at the same time. It's interesting because I think in math, it's actually quite common that people will say, oh, I'm not, I'm just not good at math. I actually asked Willingham on my podcast about how much of this is genetic. And he said it's usually, people usually agree at this point, it's around 25%. So there's absolutely a genetic component. Like some people are always going to be better at some things than others. Yeah. I think people probably can all learn math to like a certain level. So I think we do definitely need to make sure that people understand that for sure you can probably achieve a certain level and working hard is obviously something you want to do. But I guess the issue with growth mindset maybe is that it's just a lot of talk. So yeah. you can't just go around saying, have a growth mindset and and you will do well. There's a lot of things that have to be there for you to be able to learn math properly. Right, You have to be taught well, you have to get good practice and all those things. And they probably mean a lot more than just feeling like you can do it. So do, do you think, Anna, that would you say that anybody can learn maths to like a fairly proficient degree? Or do you think there's a kind of a, an innate aspect to it? Well, I have to be careful about what I say here because, you know, I don't know for sure. I suspect that most people can learn math to a certain level. There probably is some sort of innate piece to it. 
but we do want people to try. We don't want teachers to be labeling children like you're a math person and you're not a math person. What do you think? It's interesting because growth mindset is, it's kind of attacking this idea of innateness or at least the kind of innate intelligence. When you look at something like grit, you know, Angela Duckworth stuff, the perseverance towards long-term goals, it kind of maps onto the, the construct of conscientiousness. Like a lot of critics of it just say it's basically conscientiousness. And in a way, it kind of turns back in on itself because to what extent is growth mindset an innate thing? Like, are some people just born with a better growth mindset than others? You know, are some people just up at 6 a.m., they've got a neat desk, they can work, whereas other people just, they just need the deadline to, to work on it, you know? So even that is kind of, to what extent is that a heritable trait? So it, it's difficult. But again, growth mindset, we don't know if it's going to work at scale. But there's stuff that we definitely do know works at scale. And for whatever reason, it's derided. Also, the conscientiousness, the resilience, that sort of thing, it probably has a lot to do with your upbringing as well, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I notice growth mindset, you often see it in elite public schools or private schools where you have a lot of students who are going to do well regardless. John Hollingsworth, he wrote a book called Explicit Instruction. And in that book, he talks about this distinction between talent development versus talent discovery. And talent discovery, they're usually the kids who have their essays on the board or they get the you know merits and all that kind of stuff. He says the figure's roughly maybe 20%. Kids are going to do well regardless. They're going to do well regardless of whether they've got a, an effective teacher or an effective curriculum or whatever. They're just going to do well. But talent development is about all those other 80%. And, and that's where explicit instruction is so important because you're not just merely identifying and discovering talent, you're actually developing it. And I think that's a nice, a nice idea. You wrote a blog post called Five Things I Wish I Knew When I Started Teaching. And I was hoping we could talk about some of those things. I found that really helpful and interesting. And a big one I want to talk about is motivation. So you wrote that you wish you'd known that motivation doesn't always lead to achievement, but actually achievement often leads to motivation. So can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, I, I kind of came across this in two points. One was Graham Nuttall's book, The Hidden Lives of Learners, which is I just would recommend to everybody. It's a really short book. I think it was the first time I encountered this idea that, that motivation and achievement, there's a sort of an inverse relationship uh, to them. Then there was a review by Daniel Merce, and Merce and Reynolds wrote a book, a really great, another great book called, I think it's called Effective Teaching. It's a review of the literature. And I saw it there again. And then I started to read some studies on this and started to notice that students who achieve things, even in the short term, it tends to have this knock-on effect to their motivation. My theory is that we kind of have the causal arrow the wrong way around. I grew up in a system where you would try to motivate kids either through intrinsic or extrinsic awards or an assembly or a prize or whatever it was. Whereas I started to notice that in my own practice that if you can get somebody to a place where they experience success, even in a, just a small way, and use that as a kind of a lever to move things forward, I noticed that that was a, a very effective way of doing things. And that was really about explicit modeling of things close feedback, opportunities for practice. And again, it's one of those things that's very counterintuitive. 
it's one of these things that the more complex something is, the less it's going to fly with the public and with people in general, because it takes explanation. That's one of those things which I think is, it's a difficult thing to get your head around. I agree with this. And from teaching for many years, I've observed this as well. And I think especially in math, which has a lot of applications, I think there's a lot of expectations that we're always supposed to be including applications when we're teaching. But often the applications are really messy. And I've observed that, in fact, when students are unhappy in class, it's not because I'm not giving applications. It's usually when they're lost or struggling with the material. Also, like my students, the ones that have more difficulty with math, it's actually the application piece that they don't like that much. I mean, I do motivate with applications. I just think that the idea that applications are going to cause students to like math more or be more motivated to do more math isn't necessarily correct. I think that when students feel success, that's when they feel motivated to do more because it makes them feel good. They feel like they're good at math. Yeah, I think there's a lot of students who are going through the day feeling no success at all and not learning anything at all. They're just kind of going through the motions. Again, that, that's where I think instruction and thinking about instructional design is so important. And I mean, also, you can't be doing songs and dances and, and stuff all the time for the students. Like at some point, they do have to sort of understand that learning is something that you should try to do and you should try to enjoy and you can enjoy. Like you can enjoy doing things just for the sake of learning things and acquiring knowledge. Absolutely. Let's talk about engagement. And this is a big one. You've written a blog post about engagement called Just Because They're Engaged Doesn't Mean They're Learning. I've also seen you write busy classrooms are not thinking classrooms. I don't know if you were referring to the building thinking classrooms that's sort of popular in, in Canada here. But anyway, so can you discuss this? What, what do you think about engagement? So Rob Coe, who is brilliant, I think it was his inaugural speech, maybe like I want to say 10 years ago, he had this one slide. He was talking about lesson observations and why it's so difficult and the problems with lesson observations. And this slide was titled, Poor Proxies for Learning. And the second bullet point in that slide was engagement. Kids are busy and so on and so forth. Again, it was another one of those things where I, I was confronted with something that was instinctively felt wrong. But I started to have this idea that all of this stuff is about circumventing our own biases and that we're so prone to get things wrong. Uh, I think Michael Shermer has this phrase, believe in things that don't need to be believed in to be true. So I, I looked into this a bit more and I thought, well, that, that can't be right. You know, engagement is, a, is the first thing you need to learn anything. I started to kind of think about it more deeply and notice that, yeah, there's a lot of superficial stuff going on in classrooms, including my own at the time. I was kind of like caught in this idea of, this relevance fallacy, that everything needs to be relevant to the students. I can remember in my first year or two of teaching someone, I was teaching Hamlet and, someone, and, and like having an outside expert come in and say, you know, have you ever thought about using hip hop or like Eminem, get them to rewrite the words, which was just a terrible idea. I mean, so 
that idea about engagement, I think it's a very kind of misleading idea. But again, that idea is just so pervasive. It's so attractive. The idea that if you do a lesson where the kids are running around and they're really engaged, they're doing stuff that's really fascinating, that, that somehow they're going to learn things. This is especially true of technology. I was noticing that students were like making PowerPoints or, you know, they were spending an hour on this PowerPoint presentation. And at the end of it, they'd learned very little about the content, but they had learned how to kind of embed GIFs or whatever into their PowerPoints. It's something to be very wary of, especially if someone tells you that that is their measure of the effectiveness of their program, because we actually need people to learn. And, and that's the important part. It's not that hard to measure whether someone's actually learned math, for example. Yeah. So why would someone measure engagement? Like, why would that be their measure? I mean, they could maybe say that's one of their measures, but the main measure should really always be, did they actually learn the content? So let's talk about uh, general skills. So you mentioned that you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that there is no such thing as developing a general skill. And you wrote an article called Why Schools Should Not Teach General Critical Thinking Skills. The idea is that we're often told that we need to develop 21st century skills or critical thinking skills and that these general problem solving skills would then be applied to various domains. So what's wrong with that idea? When I wrote that article a few years ago, I think the title was something about generic skills. And then the editor, when it came out, that was the title. And I got a lot of flack for that. I think that it really comes from the body of work on expertise. And that work really shows that expertise is largely domain specific. At the time, I was encountering a lot of stuff like alliterative phrases like, you know, the four C's or which I was really suspicious of as well, because if, if your whole kind of educational initiative is based on letters that are the same letter, either one of two things is true. It's either an incredible coincidence that all of these things begin with the same letter, or you've just made it up. Collaboration, creativity, curation, you know, all this kind of stuff. There was also, I think, I think it's Prensky's idea about digital natives, you know, the idea that in an age of technology, curation and all creativity, these are more important than actually knowledge. And then also the idea, Sugata Mitra, again, another TED Talk, another huge, huge thing, the idea that knowledge is not important because you can just Google it. Why do we need to know anything when we've got mobile phones? You know, kids can look things up. It's redundant to know stuff. We can talk about things like Yes, there are, of course, there are generic skills. So reading, I think there are principles. So correlation is not causation is a principle, but it's not really a skill. And even in my own subject of English literature, you find that you can be creative only to the extent that you have knowledge about the thing that you're trying to be creative with. So even if you say, take the main idea in a text or apply this idea to it or that idea to it, without any real understanding of the text itself, even within a domain. So let's say the domain of English literature. If I'm teaching Othello, or if I'm studying Othello, I can talk about that. But if it was another play, those generic skills, they're of no use to me because I have nothing to, to sort of work with. That's another kind of quite counterintuitive idea. But yet, you just see this over and over and over again. 
let's not focus on knowledge. Let's focus on kind of generic skills, creativity, curation, and so on and so forth. It's a very kind of unsophisticated appraisal of how learning happens and what we should do about it. So when people say that, when they say, you know, let's focus on teaching critical thinking skills, like what exactly do they have in mind? I guess in the humanities, it often looks like taking knowledge and applying it to sort of create something new or something that's original. So it comes from saying, okay, so we can we can look for the central ideas or central themes in something. In terms of maths and, and science, I'm not quite sure, but I guess in science, there's general scientific principles at work, methods of induction, and so on and so forth. But like creativity, we don't even know what that is, really. It's a very, very slippery concept to define and to kind of nail down, and even in a domain-specific way. So what is creativity within astrophysics? What is creativity within punk music? What is creativity? You know, it's all so kind of different. And I guess in a broad sense, you can say it's the blending of existing knowledges into something that's new or original. But even that kind of falls apart. That's something that we're seeing AI do now with disastrous consequences. Even like if you look at a lot of great artists and musicians, like almost all of it is based on a, a really deep and rich knowledge of the domain they're working in. If you listen to the Beatles songs, they've got this encyclopedic knowledge of not just 50s rock and roll, but classical music, the blues. And that's what they're drawing on to be creative. Creativity is really important. I spent many years of my life trying to be creative. And more than anything, I'm obsessed with literature and music. But I think to teach it, I think, in that way is, is misguided. Yeah. And I think in math, what they probably would have in mind is problem solving. So solving complex problems, but without actually working on the foundational piece. Practicing procedures and techniques and things like that would be considered rote. Being immersed in problems and trying to solve the problems, that would be considered developing creativity. But again, the problem is that if you don't have the techniques and foundational skills, it would be hard to solve those problems and be creative with those problems. I think it's similar, just in a, a different setting. I often see like Richard Feynman quotes. And whether they're taken out of context, I don't know, but they're kind of very much like, oh, knowledge, facts don't matter, or you know, this kind of stuff. Is he misquoted there, or is that like, what's going on with that? I've wondered about that too. You see this Twitter account, right? And you, you see yeah. these kinds of things. And then a lot of people retweet it. And I think it could be one of two things. Either they are misquotes, or it's the curse of knowledge. I think right. people forget how much work they had to do to get to the point where they are. With Matt Burns, we talked about this. And he mentioned that also there are just people that it doesn't take them as long to acquire the facts and techniques and skills as it does other people. So they don't actually relate. So my guess is it has to do with these things. So is it like, you know, every year when the, when the, the school results come out and you get some millionaire saying, I failed all my GCSEs and it, look at me now, it doesn't matter. In other words, they, they were extremely lucky to get where they were. Whereas for 99% of people, you know, having good exam results is, is life-changing. I think it's a lot like that. 
we can't all be Richard Feynman. Like most of us actually have to do a lot of work to get to the, the point where we can be successful. So yeah, I think that's a great analogy. On this topic, do you think there's a science of learning? I've seen some people challenging this notion on social media because we've heard a lot about the science of reading and then there's the science of math. So do you think there is something like a science of learning? I think that there is a science of learning. If we define learning as, as Paul would put it, a change in long-term memory, which I don't see what else it could be, the only thing I would add to that would be a relatively permanent change in long-term memory. And if we take that as our starting point, then there's absolutely things that we can measure. And what, you know, what do we mean by a science? Well, hypotheses that are testable, that are falsifiable. And you know, we've known since the 1950s with George Miller that working memory is limited. We know that long-term memory is, as far as we know, huge, relatively infinite, and that the interrelationship between those two things is hugely important. And also, when we get down to it, we're really talking about information processing. How, do, how does the brain, not the mind, the brain process information, encode it, store it, and then retrieve it? That's just the kind of the starting point. Now, I think there's absolutely such thing as a science of learning. Lots of these things have been tested and replicated. Where I think there's a problem is I don't think we, there's such thing as a science of teaching. So trying to apply those principles is the challenge, I think. But those discoveries that we've had maybe in the last kind of 60 years, you know, you, you have behaviorism in the first part of the 20th century. That was the only game in town really up until the 50s or 60s, despite the fact that you had figures like Piaget. I think Frederick Barton's really important in the 1930s with the schema theory. But from the kind of 1960s onwards, it's called the cognitive revolution, but you have this massive shift, you have this massive change, and I think that there can be very little debate about those things. We often get criticized, those of us who are interested in this, for saying, well, learning's about so much more than that. And of course it is. But this is just kind of one kind of foundation to base things on. And if you're not basing it on evidence, then what are you basing it on? So I definitely think there's a science of learning and the challenge therein is really to think about the application of that. And that might take a long time, I think. Okay, so let me make sure I'm understanding this. So the science of learning, if we could define it. So first of all, we have a definition of learning as a change in long-term memory and mm -hmm. using the scientific method to measure how that could be done. Does that sound right? Right. Yeah. What would be some effective ways to teach that would be in line with the science of learning? Okay. Number one, we understand new stuff through old stuff. In other words, we understand new knowledge through what we already have within our brains. If that's true, and if we accept that principle, then we need to give students we need to furnish them with the knowledge they're going to need to understand new knowledge. And that's an explicit thing that we can outline. So if you know you're going to teach differential equations, then there's going to be smaller components that you need to build up to that and know what to do. So that will be one major principle. Well, I guess the major, the flagship idea from cognitive load theory is that a working memory is limited. It gets easily overloaded. 
and to leverage long-term memory as a way of kind of changing that. I think thirdly, memory is a really slippery thing. And when we retrieve stuff, we're constantly re-encoding it. We're constantly changing it. It doesn't work like a tape recorder. It doesn't work like a computer where you dredge it up and it's still there as it was. It exists in relation to other knowledge. So how we use it, how we retrieve it is uh, really important. Then I would say the steps needed towards a desired outcome often look very different than than the desired outcome. So we wrote in our book, independent learning is a bad way to become an independent learner. To take a sporting analogy, you don't win a trophy by saying, we're going to win a trophy. So you often hear in football, managers or coaches are successful. You know, journalists say to them, are you going to win the title this year? And they go, we're just focused on the next game. We're not even going to think about that. And breaking larger global skills down into smaller components. So just focusing on the details of the thing that's next rather than the kind of end outcome. So we all want people to be independent learners. We all want students to be working independently. Here's another big thing that never gets mentioned. So people like... I'm not going to include myself in this, but like Paul Kirshner, John Sweller, and others in that field, there's this caricature of them that they're just interested in explicit instruction, stuff from cognitive science. In in cognitive load theory, an explicit goal of it is to get students to a place where they are doing inquiry, independent learning, working away from a teacher. It's just that they have different views about how to get there. And you could argue that the weight of evidence is towards what we might call, in a broad sense, cognitivism. So there there would be some kind of general principles. I guess, you know, critical thinking, well, what are you going to think with? And you need to think with knowledge. So what are the ways of furnishing students with that knowledge, getting them motivated? We have a good track record of that. We have some quite good evidence on that. And again, things like the work example effect, modeling, these are very, very effective ways of doing that. But again, the, the, the last thing I'll just say in this is, why doesn't every educator know about these principles? Just the basics of like the limitations of working memory, all of those things, it's just extraordinary to me how somebody can be trained to work in a public school and teach young kids and never encounter the fundamental mechanics of learning. So in the worked example effect, that's a tried and true method. Yeah. I actually think it's sort of seen as old fashioned, but why would you put these labels on something that actually helps people learn? It, it's so obvious. So in math in particular, I think the worked example effect is really important. If you want to give someone problem solving techniques, what do you do? You model problems and you get them to then solve a problem like the one you did, and gradually you can take away the amount of support you're giving. And then the students can solve problems on their own. It just, it makes perfect sense. So you're talking about worked example effects, scaffolding, retrieval practice, those kinds of things, right? Checking for understanding, yeah. And I think it's not even just that a lot of times teachers don't know it. I think a lot of times they're told not to use those methods, yeah, yeah. that they don't work, which is yeah. even worse than not knowing it. 
it is extraordinary. And I still don't know why that is. I think it's a kind of, it's an ideological, I don't know who it was who said a good test of someone who's, well, a scientist would be to ask them things that they accepted are true, but wish they weren't. I think there's a lot of people, particularly in education, who they haven't changed their mind on anything. They've just started off with a, a position and despite evidence to the contrary, they haven't kind of shifted or changed their mind on anything. We should mention one last thing, just with the PISA data coming out and something that I've seen you write a lot about. In fact, I went back to some of your work just yesterday because I was writing an intelligence memo for C.D. Howe Institute about the scores, and you've written a lot about cell phones. I've seen you even write that we're going to look back on kids using phones today in the same way we look back in horror at kids sliding around the backseat of cars with no seatbelts in the 80s. Do you want to talk a bit about the research findings on phone use and how it impacts children and learning? Yeah, it's not good. That's the basic premise. And I should also say I started, this is one area where I completely changed my mind. Probably 10 years ago, I was an advocate of using technology and even using phones in a classroom. For my PhD, I'd read, I'd spent about two years reading an obscure Russian philosopher called Bakhtin, and I loved it. And he, you know, he was writing about Dostoevsky, and, but a lot of it mapped on to learning in terms of this idea of the dialogic, of being in a dialogue with knowledge in the wider world. And it kind of made sense to me that students being in a dialogue through the internet. But what has happened in the last 10 years is that digital devices have become captured by particularly social media companies who have billions of dollars of algorithms, technology pointed at your head, knowing exactly what pushes your buttons. Now, for us as adults, it's extremely difficult and it's extremely distracting. But for a 12-year-old, it's a disaster. And it's a disaster not just in terms of attention, focus, learning. We're also learning that it's a disaster for well-being, mental health, so the idea that a, a teacher is going to have 20, 30 students in a classroom with their mobile phones and all of the attendant distractions on it, and that that student is going to use that phone in a constructive way, it's just a complete misnomer. I mean, there's some extraordinary evidence. Like there was one study showed that a phone that's even turned off on a desk. So even if the phone is turned off when it's on a desk can be a distracting influence. One of the most replicated studies are a question you often hear is like what's better in a lecture note taking or taking notes on a laptop note taking almost always wins out there you know if you test the students at the end about what they remember or what they learned then it's usually a note taking and that you know that kind of stands to reason because it's more effortful you know as an english teacher and as a lover of books i think we're kind of losing this ability to just stay with ideas or stay with things. Particularly when I was younger, I would I would read books for you know hours and sometimes days. And when I went to university, I was I loved it so much because I could just read for you know I could read a novel in in two days or something like that. And I just loved doing that. And I feel like we're losing that that kind of ability to focus in that way. And we're an interesting kind of case study, like you know people our age, because we've almost had half of our lives with no internet and the second half of our lives completely saturated in it. So we remember what it was like to live in a, in a world pre-internet. Mark Zuckerberg 10 years, well, 15 years ago was talking about how social media was going to bring the world together and it was going to create this kind of utopian ideal. And 
exactly the opposite has happened, really. You can see how social media has been a disaster for us on so many fronts. But for learning, at its heart, it's about drilling down and thinking hard and bringing to bear stuff that you have already and kind of laser like just zooming in on one thing. And phones are the complete antithesis of that. I see it myself when I'm on my phone. I try not to have anything on my phone other than just, you know, the bare bones of stuff. But sometimes if I go to a conference or whatever, I have to put Twitter on my phone and it's a disaster. I'm just like, you know, mindlessly scrolling through it. So I think it's very worrying. And I think that if, if schools have one policy, I think banning phones would be the most important. Another thing that stood out from that PISA data is just even the distraction of having other people on their phones was strongly associated with lower math scores, which doesn't surprise me in the least. And in the summer, I went to see the play Hamilton and there is someone in front of me on their phone the entire time. And you start to get really irritated about it. Like, why are you on your phone? And the light keeps coming on. And just think about children in a class. Even at the university level, I think that university instructors would be wise to have no cell phone policies in their classes. I do. I've told my students why. I use the secondhand smoke analogy like Paul Kirshner talks about, you know, that it bothers the people around you. Even if you're not worried about yourself, you should at least be worried about your peers. Do your students have laptops? No, they don't have laptops. So because they're generally taking notes and most of them wouldn't know how to take the the notes and the math symbols, but a lot of them do take notes on their their iPads. But most students actually are just taking notes on paper. I, I also kind of worry a lot about my own kids. I have three girls and I they're very young. Like I see kids now who are seven, eight with mobile phones, cell phones. And I just think to myself, like what? possible reason can an eight-year-old have to need to have a mobile phone? I just can't get my head around it at all. And it, it it's only a portal to bad things, really, for for young kids. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, a real worry. But I do think that it's going to be almost impossible to put the genie back in the bottle now. I grew up, as I'm sure you did as well, where smoke, people were smoking everywhere. You know, they were smoking on planes, on buses, in public spaces, restaurants, pubs, bars. Now, you, you'd be shocked to to see that. And I think that there's a sort of a Wild West feel to mobile phones, the internet, and what's available. And so I think there there might be some accord, either internationally, where there'll be some kind of agreement with particularly social media companies where they'll have to kind of step up in terms of their responsibility. And we may see some international legislation for things like age restrictions on TikTok and things like that. I mean, TikTok is just, it's a disaster for anybody who's trying to do rarefied things, you know, whether that be maths or philosophy or history or whatever it is, because it encourages this incredibly superficial engagement with things. If you're kind of flicking through things and and if you talk to students, they'll all say it like, you know, that it's just, it's a disaster for them. How are you meant to go back to reading a novel or solving a problem or whatever it is after you're doing that? So I, th- I think it's a real issue. But Jonathan Haidt has done some really good work on this with uh, Gene Twenge. They've published some things. And he has a new book coming out, which I think will be on this topic. 
And, you know, he's someone who I think doesn't just point to the problem and criticize it, but he tries to come up with solutions. I think he's a, he's a really interesting voice to listen to. Last thing, what's your advice for new teachers? Think about the things that will really make an impact. So there's lots of things that are probably going to give you marginal gains, but then there are things that will really have an impact. Probably one of those is the behavior in the room, the climate of the room, as Tom would say. It, whatever you've got to do to get a hold of that and to create the conditions under which students can learn, where they don't feel intimidated by you or by other pupils who are misbehaving or whatever that might be. Then I think model what it means to love your subject. I think that's a kind of fluffier way of sneaking in explicit instruction by the back door. I was mesmerized by one teacher in particular when I was probably like 16, 17, who talked about the Odyssey by Homer. And he talked about it in a way that really impacted me. And he, he would just come in and talk for you know, 20, 25 minutes. He wasn't that interested in what we thought, <laughs> but we were interested in what he thought because he was just fascinating. And he would, he would range from, he would talk about Homer and the Odyssey, and then he would kind of talk about wine and like he'd go on this 10 minute diatribe about what wine meant to Greek society. And then he would talk about Alexander and his campaigns. And we were just like riveted listening to this man because he was just so fascinating and so interesting. But above all, he modeled this reverence for knowledge. Like it was just this palpable thing. And I learned from him and it spoke to me. And obviously it didn't speak to you know everybody, but it, it was my first encounter with, wow, knowledge is important and reading is important. So think about the impact and model your subject and what it means because if if it's not shining out of you then how are they meant to know what it means to love your subject that would be i think one of the number one things about getting students to like math display a love for math yourself like math is fun you can just have tons of fun doing it and just try to be passionate about what you're teaching i completely agree I always wonder, I always like ask maths teachers about that because with literature and philosophy, you, a way in is to kind of talk to things that affect all people, such as mortality, life, death, love, so on and so forth, characters. You can kind of get into it that way. It was much later in my life when, you know, I, I just wasn't very good at maths as, as younger and I kind of got away from it. And then later on, I realized it's just another language that it's a beautifully elegant and, and sometimes very beautiful language that I just didn't know. And it made me think differently about it. And I thought, I wish I had kind of paid attention when I was younger. But in terms of like modeling that passion for things, like what kind of things do you use? Well, the thing that I love about math is that it's really logical. I like logical arguments. And it's interesting because people sometimes say about me, oh, you just want children to memorize math. Really, there's not that much to memorize in math. Like, I want kids to memorize their times tables. That's not a big deal. Maybe a few other things and lots of practice, but it's there's not that much to memorize in math. And that's one of the wonderful things about it. If you're taking biology, you may have a thick stack of index cards and you've got to memorize all these terms. In math, everything's just really logical and every step follows logically from the last step. And it can be like solving puzzles. So that's what I love about it. And I just try to display how much I enjoy it and that it can be fun to do math. 
And usually students are happy with that. As long as they're getting good instruction, and I emphasize that they have to get a lot of practice, and you know, I'm displaying enthusiasm for the subject, it usually goes really well. So I'm sorry you didn't like math. No, but it, it wasn't until I was older that I really, that, you know, there were certain concepts like regression to the mean, and where I was applying it to different things, and they, oh God, that's such a clever kind of way of looking at a phenomenon. It was something that I. It's something that I've worked on in the last few years with statistical analysis, and I'm much more interested in it now. But I think John Sweller, he talked about, because a lot of the stuff in the field of cognitive psychology is obviously done in math and science. I, I think it was maybe literature. He, the, well, he described it as a, an ill-defined domain. And so one of the questions with a lot of cognitive science is, does it work or is it appropriate even? to a field like literature or the humanities, which I think is a, particularly when there's so much ambiguity there. So I think that's, a, that's another thing that I'm quite interested in. It has been absolutely wonderful talking to you today. And I want to thank you so much. I've been a huge fan of your work. I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And I understand we're going to meet each other in Toronto. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to go there. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And it's, I'm such a fan of this podcast. I listen to it all the time. I'm constantly listening to it, like when I'm, you know, trying to get my my daughters off to sleep or whatever. So it's it's a real honor to be asked on. Oh well, I'm honored that you've been listening. So thank you so much. More in just a moment. If you are interested in the science of learning and would like to learn more, consider attending Research Ed Canada which will take place in Toronto, May 3rd through 4th of 2024. I know I have a lot of American listeners. Toronto is a beautiful city and we would welcome you there. I will give a presentation there, as will many other guests I've had on the podcast, including Carl Hendrick, Amanda Vander Hayden, Dan Willingham, Tom Bennett, and others. I will include a link to the conference website in the show notes. As always, we've included a resource page for this episode that has links to articles on growth mindset, cell phones, and other topics discussed in the episode. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. I've got another great episode coming out on January 26th. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider showing your support by leaving a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Chalk and Talk is produced by me, Anna Stocky. Transcript and resource page by Jasmine Boisclair. Social media images by Nicole Melem Gutierrez. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get new episodes delivered as they become available. You can follow me on X for notifications or check out my website, anastocky.com, for more information. This podcast received funding through a University of Winnipeg Knowledge Mobilization and Community Impact Grant funded through the Anthony Sweaty Knowledge Impact Fund. Mm -hmm.